Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So this is talk number six, final talk on the Maha Prajna Paramita Pidaya Sutra. Um, I hope that you're beginning to feel in our sitting meditation that you can sit. And I think if you boil down the Heart Sutra to advice on sitting meditation, the advice would start out as sit like a Buddha. And then, when you get the feeling for the Heart Sutra, you take out the like, which is basically saying, sit, Buddha. Um, Sit as a Buddha. So, Buddha means to be awake, from the term bodhi. Bud is to awake. Uh, The bodhi mind is an awakened mind. Um, So when we talk about sitting Buddha, the Buddha is not so much a person, but that quality, that energy of sitting awake. Sitting awake. To sit awake to sound. So you are the place where the whole world converges. You are the empty space in which the entire world converges. You're the place where the whole universe constellates. And to feel that in the sitting practice. So that when we're listening to the field of sound, which we were exploring today, partly because fire alarm, possibility of balloon explosion, (laughs) um, that there's this sense that there's listening and there's sound. We keep feeling the dukkha between them, that kind of restlessness, because there's a me listening to sound. But according to the Heart Sutra, that's a delusion that you've created. And then, when you're not paying attention so much to what you're saying to yourself about listening, like, for example, that the sound is over there, then the only thing left between your experience of listening and the sound itself are images images that you create. So you hear, you know, a sound outside and immediately you create a spatial schema in your brain that you're in here, the sound is outside and you see an image of outside and a tractor. But when you can drop that also, suddenly there's this experience just of no separation between listening and the sound. It becomes Samadhi, integration, subject and object. And then as soon as that happens, there's this expansive sense of spaciousness, of intimacy, of interconnection, of love, and not your idea of love, but just the feeling of being held in the universe. Everything's okay. And then the mind comes in and tries to figure out what just happened. And then it dissolves. Uh, Roshi Enkyo O'Hara tells this story uh, in her commentary on the Heart Sutra. 
I remember a friend who was dying of liver cancer. He was very uncomfortable, an older man in his 70s. He was at a retreat that I was leading in Philadelphia, and he told me he was only going to stay for the morning, but he stayed all day. I asked, Ed, why did you stay? And he said, well, I was sitting next to this young man and he was so fidgety. I thought, if I just sat next to him and if I was very still, it would help his practice. So Ed sat there all day long like a Buddha. Like a Buddha? And then she changes the sentence. Ed sat there all day long. And that's what we do in our practice. We have no idea how we're affecting the person next to us. We sit there and we allow our chest to be open. We allow our energy to circulate. And we have no idea what that's doing around us. It's a wonderful thing. Isn't that nice? We have no idea the effect of our practice. Yeah, sitting next to Mina. Yeah, what did you feel sitting next to her? I actually was sharing with Mike earlier that just for descriptive purposes, the first half of the sitting, the first half an hour, felt like it was the best sitting practice I've had this week. And so I I just felt her calmness, her stillness, the regalness of of how she was sitting and I felt like I was taking it in. Mm. Yeah. So, Mina, that's good for you to take in also when you hear that. So I would say that's not projection. (laughs) Really being able to to feel what it's like to, to feel the stability of other people's practice. Or what it's like to feel the instability of someone else's practice, because that's you also. That's you too. I I learned so much from one of my mentors, Norman Feldman. Uh, He is an incredible meditation teacher. Um, And... When, when So I've led retreats with Norman quite a few times, and so I sit next to him. And, you know, two times we sat was about three days after he came home from leading a pilgrimage in India. So he would come to the front of the room, he'd start leading the meditation, and then he'd just doze off. <laughs> doze off. And I love sitting next to him when he was so tired, because... It was really inspiring that somebody, I don't know if anyone here has traveled to Asia and back, but that someone who's traveled to Asia and back actually shows up and just sits there with their tiredness. It's really amazing. And I felt that today because I had a fever yesterday afternoon. I was in bed. I was like, I'm not going to be there the last two days of the, of the, so then I decided, okay, I'm going to lie here completely still and have faith that the whole thing's just going to move through. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and then um, I, I thought about Norman, and I thought, oh, you're really tired, or you're ill, or you're in pain, and then you just let it move through you. Don't fight it. So you can feel Mina moving through you. Um, a really important part of practice is to be able to shift out of where you are and see where you are from another perspective. That's the teaching of the Heart Sutra. To course in deep Prajnaparamita is to feel, oh, here I am, this meditator doing so-so, that was a great sit, you know? And then to shift and just really feel someone else's presence. This is what we're doing in Shavasana. We finish Shavasana and every day I say to you, shift, don't hold on to Shavasana. When you lie to your side, don't hold on to the sensation of Shavasana. Open your eyes, open your ears, and be fully in that. And when you sit up, shift out of that. Don't, don't hold on. Um, I, I said to uh, Lena, um, 
and Mina before break. When you have the job of ringing the bell or the, using the clackers, you have to really tune into the room. So sometimes people are having a hard time, and when you ring the bell, you visualize that the bell is their heart. And you just ring it so softly, just like you, you're ringing everyone's heart. And then sometimes the room is really sloppy. Right? Today, the beginning of walking meditation, is like the line was like, like a snake with a leg. <laughs> so then I, I, I said, so you're, the clackers are made of wood. So use the wood. And I think most of you jumped. (laughs) And then you're awake. You're awake. And there's nothing personal about it. You're not bad. You just you hear the loud sounds, so you can be awake. Mm -hmm. I think you start with the intention that you're appreciating your life. I'm so lucky that I'm here today. So I'm going to spend this time doing this practice to appreciate it. Yes? I don't. But you can. And people who have jobs with hallways, I recommend they do walking meditation. So I once taught someone who was a surgeon and he used to do walking meditation from the office to the surgery room and back from the surgery room to the office. And that was a really important time of the day. And maybe that would happen two or three times a day. He'd put on his gowns, do his hands, you know, then he would walk and walk back. So let's just review this term emptiness. Uh, in his uh, commentary on the Heart Sutra, in a text called Infinite Circle, Bernie Glassman defines emptiness like this. Emptiness is just everything, just as it is right now. Emptiness is just everything, just as it is right now. Hanshan, one of my favorite poets, his name means Cold Mountain, Um, this is what he wrote about emptiness. All this depends on the meditator who in the time of a thought can achieve the correct contemplation of the heart. It's a pretty advanced meditation technique. All of this depends. So all of your ideals about what you're learning in the Heart Sutra, what does it really rest on? It rests on the meditator who in the time of a thought, isn't that a wonderful phrase? In the time of a thought can achieve the correct contemplation of the heart. Which I understand as just to become that space that can hold the thought. Not grasping it, not pushing it away. That's what this depends on. So, then we learned in the Heart Sutra how the text outlines, well, Avalokiteshvara outlines the top Buddhist doctrines of the time and then denies the fundamental reality of them. So he goes through the skandhas, he goes through um, uh, sense objects, sense organs, uh, the links of causation, the Four Noble Truths, our ideas about enlightenment. And so, in summary... Empty does not mean nothing. Empty begs the question, empty of what? Things are empty of swabhava. They're empty of own being. We are in a water world where everything is fluid and we are much more like rivers than like cars or sidewalks. Things are much more fluid than our mind makes them to be. And emptiness is to course in that fluidity. Um, But the Heart Sutra also acknowledges that we have some dukkha, that we have some 
suffering. And every time I teach, I always try and find a new way of defining the term dukkha. And I've gone through many. If you've studied with me for a while, you've heard at least a dozen of them. And so lately, my translation of dukkha is just the restlessness that's built into our experience. That even in moments of happiness, even in moments of happiness, we experience a little bit of restlessness. So why is dukkha restlessness? Why is happy? Why does happiness give rise to restlessness? Because what dukkha is really teaching us is the ungraspability of our experience. That we can't grasp our experience. And so always when we try and grasp our experience, even happiness, I want to hold on to this. There's a little bit of restlessness in the experience. And this is the restlessness that's built into everything. When there's some grasping. And a lot of our life is ungraspable. Our frustrations, have we been frustrated? Sometimes we try and really understand our frustrations, and sometimes they're ungraspable. We have conflict that sometimes can't be resolved because sometimes its nature is ungraspable. You, you are betrayed. Everyone in their life so far probably has been betrayed. Someone's doing something behind your back, saying something behind your back. And you've probably betrayed somebody too. And to really understand it just intellectually, it's ungraspable. And if you try to keep grasping at it, uh, it'll weigh you down. And also death and separation. We're going to be separated from what we love and who we love. And also, we've lost people who shouldn't have died. Even in our culture, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, all these wonderfully talented people in their 20s who before the age of 25 died. Jimi Hendrix. How many people have we lost? It was too early. Way too early. Um, All reality is dukkha because of this restlessness. Things shouldn't have been this way. Have you ever had this in meditation practice? Shouldn't be this way. Yesterday I had this when I, I woke up and realized I was really hot. And I thought, fever shouldn't be this way. In early Buddhism, it was said that the cause of dukkha, which is the second truth, um, was desire. And in the secular movement, you know, there's so much work here to to undo that that teaching. But I actually really like it. Because what the second noble truth is saying is that the cause of suffering or the origin of suffering partly has to do with our desire to grasp our experience. So this is our unconscious desire for things to last. Our unconscious, habitual desire to make things stay the same. You want things to stay the same. Then the third noble truth is the truth of stopping. Stopping ourselves. Niroda. To stop ourselves when we see that we want things to be the same all the time. According to the Heart Sutra, we see that trying to grasp grasp anything is absurd because it doesn't exist in the way you think it exists. Desire can't make anything last. How can we attain anything 
You can't attain something. Are you practicing because you want to attain something? Or try to attain somebody? Or attain some career? Can't do it. So in the Heart Sutra, this is called Anuttara Samyaksambodhi. Anuttara means unsurpassed. Samyak means correct. And Sambodhi means awakening. Coming from the word uh, Sam, which is, means to come together, and Bodhi, which means awakening. So Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi is to go beyond Wisdom way beyond wisdom. And my favorite part of the text is when you chant Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, or the phrase at the end, Gate Gate Padagate. And what I love about this translation is they've kept those terms in Sanskrit. And what I like about keeping the terms in Sanskrit is that you don't know what they mean. To me, that's the punchline of the whole text. Is you know, oh yeah, there's no I. Okay, I'm getting that, you know. And then you get to this Sanskrit phrase, and it's like, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. It's like, and you don't know what that means. Yeah. And actually, probably people didn't know what that meant because probably these texts came from Sanskrit and Pali into China, right? And then Sino-Japanese. And then maybe sometimes back to San... It was a mess. Because they're used to... I'm not going to get too far into Buddhist academics. But up until about 15 years ago or less, there was this idea in Buddhist history among academics that, that Buddhism is like an inverted tree. And you have like modern Buddhism at the top of the branch, you know, at the top of the trunk. Then when you go down into the roots or down into the branches... Then you get like Pali Buddhism and all these different you know, forms of Buddhism and you can see how they kind of come together over time. Uh, or you can look at it the other way where you go up the trunk. So you have like the core teaching of the Buddha. And this is the most popular one that we all mostly share is you have the core teaching of the Buddha, you go up the tree and then you have like Zen, Vajrayana practice, Tantra, Tibetan Buddhism, you know, Soto, Rinzai, Burmese Vipassana, right? And you have all these branches. But uh, I think it was about, I don't know, maybe just over a dozen years ago, there were some people who found some loot buried in Afghanistan uh, uh, after the 1991 invasion of Iraq. And um, they tried to, they were robbers, right? And they found all these buried uh, texts and so eventually the British library got a hold of them. Uh, scholar, his last name is Solomon, I can't remember his first name. And uh, they started, uh, a whole team of translators that this guy led, started looking at these uh, texts written in a language called Gandhari, which was the language uh, of that part of Afghanistan at the time. And they realized that everything we thought about the history of Buddhism was all wrong because they saw that from way early on, all these schools were communicating with each other. So they actually found parts of the Pali Canon right next to pieces of the Prajnaparamita Heart Sutra, the 8,000-line version. And so it kind of proved this tree uh, paradigm wrong, because instead of like this branch going up and spreading, it was actually really spread right from the beginning. I won't say too much more about that. But there actually is an issue of Tricycle Magazine, where if you wanted to look up more, there was a wonderful article recently about this academic Solomon and the Gandhari transcripts, where you can, can read more about that. Um, but uh, things have always been really mixed up. Messy. So what I like about that is... Who knows what language this was translated from? Maybe always people got to Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi and didn't know what it meant. And I really love that. That's really magical. Um, and this is really important for all of us when we read a text. 
Because whenever you're reading, you're translating. Always. Whenever you're talking, you're translating. When you're listening, you're translating. We're constantly translating. And it's important when you're translating a text or reading a text that you go to the places in the text that are shadowy and cold and rocky, and that's where you hang out. Because the places that are warm and comfortable and agree with your viewpoint, you know that. That's worth investigating, but you know it already. So you go to the place where you don't really get where that tangent's going. And the first place we hit that in the Heart Sutra is form is emptiness, emptiness is form, form. And the second place you really hit it, I think, is after the teaching on fear, and then saying, Anyutara Samyak Sambodhi. And then really trying to check out what does this mean? Anyutara Samyak Sambodhi. Um, the yoga poses are like this too, aren't they? Right? You have to get into the yoga pose to the place where I don't know anymore what this is. That place that's kind of hard, or maybe it's too liquid. Right? So you can have like this real hard thing in your shoulder joint or your trapezius. You know, it's like, what is that? And you have to slow down your breathing, slow down the moving. That's what you need to investigate. Or you can have a place where there's so much fluidity. There's no integrity. There's too much prana. There's no integrity. Same thing with studying. So then the text says, so remember, what is Anyutara Samyak Sambodhi simplified is that there is nothing to fear. Don't be scared. Keep going forward. Don't be scared. I have another baby on the way. So like, I'm really excited. I get to be a dad again. Maybe I'll do it right this time. And also, it's very scary. It's like, oh my God, not sleeping. You know, days you know, of not sleeping, pushing a stroller, being bored out of your mind. I remember those days also. Um, When the kid's too small to go out in the winter, you know, and you're just stuck at home in March. And the weather is just gray. And you're trapped. <laughs> and you go forward. You go forward and you keep going. So can you do this also in your life? There's some fear and you hold the fear and you're learning how. And then you go forward fearlessly. Fearlessly, 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 fearlessly. And going forward fearlessly is also to include a little fear. That way, the fear doesn't shake you into restlessness. Then the sutra comes to an end. First, it tells you, as it's ending, that you are about to hear a great mantra, a vivid mantra, the best mantra, the unsurpassable mantra. That's going to clear all pain. And it's a truth, and it's not a lie. So, set it forth. Set forth the mantra of Prajna Paramita, and it says it again. So you have to pay attention in a text when it says something twice, and it's saying it twice. Set forth the Prajnaparamita. Then it says it again. Set forth the mantra and say, Gatte, Gatte, Paragatte, Parasam Gatte Bodhiswaha. The sutra ends in a total burst of fireworks and flowers. Suddenly, the whole sutra becomes an incantation, becomes magic, becomes voodoo. And maybe, the whole time, the Heart Sutra was never really a philosophical text. Maybe the whole time, it was just giving you all that no, 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 just to get to the fireworks. If you keep chanting, gate, gate, paragate, Parasangate Bodhiswaha, and you don't understand it, it'll calm you down. 
you need to be able to have a mantra in your life to calm you down. And the best ones are the kind you can't understand, like your breath. Your breath is such a vivid mantra, because no matter what you do, you can't understand it. Choosing to love other people is a very powerful mantra. Because if you really try to love others, you can understand. Loving your own life is the best mantra, the unsurpassable mantra, the vivid mantra. And it's the truth, not a lie, because to love your life is to not understand it anymore. So that part of you that's Shariputra can't understand it anymore. Uh, Mel Weitzman, a Zen teacher and elder in Berkeley, California, uh, this is what he writes in his commentary on this part of the Heart Sutra. Mantra is like our activity. A true mantra is not just repeating some words over and over, but the way we actually move in our lives is our mantra. Our practice is our practice. The Prajnaparamita mantra is the mantra of practice. In a narrow sense, he says, it's how we enter the meditation room every morning and sit on the cushion, chant the sutra, and bow and move. This way is actually mantra, the mantra which induces prajna. When we offer incense, we invite prajna to permeate our activity, and we invite Buddha to join our practice. Isn't that nice? We invite Buddha to join our practice. If you look at the rhythm of your life, he continues, no matter how rough or smooth our life is, there's always a rhythm, and some kind of rhythm. And the rhythm of our life is the mantra that we are always reciting. So what kind of mantra do we want to recite? How can we recite this mantra which induces prajna through our activity day after day? So how I would sum that up is the mantra is your everyday life. The rhythm, the groove, the idiom of your everyday life. And when your life doesn't feel divided, then healing happens. If you're ever with someone who's dying, or once they die, you should chant Gate Gate Paragate Parasangate Bodhiswaha. So if you're with somebody when they die, as soon as they die, and you're with their body that's still warm, then you should say out loud, Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasangate, Bodhisattva. If you know somebody who has someone who they love who's died, and they email you and say, my uncle has passed away, my grandfather has passed away, then you should email back to them, Gate, Gate, Paragate, it's very powerful to chant gate gate and this is what it means gone gone utterly gone really gone awakening gone gone utterly gone really gone bodhiswaha Gone, gone, utterly gone, so far gone, the farthest gone, the best gone, the unsurpassable gone, the vivid gone. Woohoo! Woo! <laughs> so it's, bodhisattva means, you know, yippee! <laughs> so swaha is just like yelling. It's like saying, hallelujah. 
gone, gone, utterly gone, really gone. Celebration. What a life. Maybe we'll do this with the intensive. Gone, gone, utterly gone. Completely gone, so far gone. Yes. Yes, now yes. Or maybe you need to do this because there are things, there are ghosts that you're holding on to that want to go. And they're still biting you. They're gnawing at you. And you can't let them go. And so you have to chant for them. Gate, gate. Paragate, parasangate, bodhiswara. Gone. Gone, gone, gone beyond. Gone beyond, beyond. Yes. Swaha. The only expression of emptiness is in form. You can only express the fullness of our life through form. You can only surrender with form. Gone, gone, beyond, beyond, gone, beyond, beyond. Yes to form. Yes. Yes, and I have this body. And I have this heart. And I have this family. These siblings. These parents. These kids. My son is incredibly creative. Amazing. He has such a good mind. And he's the most stubborn person I've ever met. Where does he get this stubbornness? I mean, I try to blame it on his mother, but it's not true. Where does he get this stubbornness? And so, um, that's the form. And also to remember, he's not always stubborn. And also to remember, he's not always creative. Because some of us, we idealize our children, you know. Oh, I mean... Yes, the neighbor's kids are smart, but, like, he's special. <laughs> and yes, sometimes they're special, and sometimes they're not special. Do you want to tell your story about not special? My story about yeah. not special? The story in Boulder, in your teacher training, about not special. And somehow you told me a very funny story. When we were in Thailand, about uh, a student who oh. was. You know, so can you tell that story? <laughs> That's a really good story. That was actually it was in Thailand before. Um, there was a French lady in, in Richard's training, and he wanted to make the point clear that Brahman is not special, you know, because Brahman is everywhere, and she's. What do you mean? Brahman is not special. It's not special. But um, what's his name? The, I just don't get the name now. Shivananda. But Shivananda is special, no? And, no, not special. <laughs> but Brahman, Brahman is very, very special. <laughs> no, especially Brahman is not special. <laughs> you know, that was the, the cheese. It was just so funny, and that was, went on and on and on. She came up always with these holy names. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Richard kept saying, Yeah, no. Not special. <laughs> Certainly not special. Especially Brahman. <laughs> and then what happened? Well, she didn't come anymore. <laughs> that was she it. Stopped, yeah. She left. Yeah, she left. <laughs> <laughs> Especially Brahman. <laughs> so the last thing I want to say about the Heart Sutra is the importance of this term set forth which I would translate as activate activate the Heart Sutra it's not enough just to think about being generous in the future I'm going to be generous activate that paramita it's not enough just to think about the paramita of virya, energy. You have to activate it. We're in a culture right now where everyone is sharing on Facebook 
their favorite images of protest or suffering. I press home on my Facebook account and all I see are images of either marches or suffering. Or, like, quotes that I've seen 60 million times. But, like, reformatted (laughs) over someone's picture. Usually they've got it wrong, too. The Buddha ones are terrible. Um, It's not enough just to care about things. We have to care for things. People say, I care about the election. But it's not enough to care about the election. You have to care for the election. If you care about the election, and you say to someone, well, what are you doing about it? Oh. But I, yeah, but I care for forests. I care for what we're drilling. So that's setting forth the Prajnaparamita, is activating it. Oh, I care about my mom. But you have to go more than that. Her feet are cold. She needs a blanket. You have to care for her feet. Care for others. And you know, you can't have too many people you care for. You need to know your limits in order to activate the Heart Sutra properly. So I know for me, I can have like maybe 35 students. That's about it. I can't actually have a close relationship with her. So in my mind, I always have these like circles. You know? And the inner circle, there could be maybe 35 people. And the outer circle are people I don't have as direct a relationship with. But they're still studying. And then there's the bigger circle of people listening to podcasts or whatever. And we have a relationship also. But you can't have a kind of close knowledge of the names of people's siblings and remember stories of their life and and you can't have enough trust that they can challenge you and you can challenge them and no one's going to run away if there's a hundred people in the inner circle you, you can't have that so in order to activate the heart sutra you have to respect form In order to set forth compassion in your life, you have to respect the form of your life. And then you can take a risk and try something new and set forth the prajna paramita. In the February issue of Intelligent Life, which is a magazine you get at the airport, uh, there was an interview with a quantum physicist and mathematician, who also many of you might know for developing uh, a lot of really interesting ideas around global warming, uh, named Freeman Dyson, who this year is 88 years old. And Freeman Dyson is also really well known uh, in kind of the intelligentsia for the person most denied the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, He's kind of regarded as the Nobel uh, Committee's glaring mission. Uh, So there was an interview with him where he was asked three questions. The first one is why he remained hard at work. Number two was where were his strengths and weaknesses now compared to earlier in his career? And three, what advice would he give those who have been working for one year? And what advice would he give for people who have been working for 30 years? And this was done by email. So I'm just going to read his responses, because this is the heart sutra. One, I continue working because I agree with Sigmund Freud's definition of mental health. To be healthy means to love and to work. Both activities are good for the soul, and one of them also helps to pay for the groceries. Some of you might know this quote from Freud, famous quote, that underneath the only way to finally solve anxiety is to work. Uh, I think there's something to that. Number two, so that's activate, right? Activate. Set forth the Prajnaparamita. Go work. Do something. 
Number two, I say this to all my students, especially who are young and especially who are women. Uh, when you start really feeling a draw towards these practices, uh, if you decide that you're going to maybe follow the path of the Dharma or you want to teach someday, uh, also go to university and get a degree. You're young and you don't have so much responsibility. And whether you like it or not, is really important to have a good education and to have practical skills. And what's happening in our city right now is like so many people don't know how to make anything anymore. The only thing they make in Toronto are espresso and sandwiches. But we need to learn again the craft of how to build nice fences, more beautiful sidewalks, really nice lighting in the city. Like we need people who have skills. And if you're young and you're interested in the Dharma, like express it, set it forth, and get an education. Get a really good education. So you can find out what you're good at. And there are people who usually know it better than you. And study with them. Apprentice with them. It's really important. And the Dharma piece, it won't go away. But that's a good way to serve the Dharma. You don't necessarily have to teach people how to do headstands. You can express yoga by going to university, going to college. So, number two. Sorry about all the commentary. (laughs) Uh, In my younger days... Oh, do you remember the question? What are your strengths and weaknesses now compared to earlier in your career? In my younger days, my work as a scientist was deep and narrow. Now as I grow old, my work grows broader and shallower. As a young man, I solve technical problems of interest only to a few specialists. As an old man, I write books about human affairs of interest to a broad public. In both halves of my life, I tried to make the best use of my limited abilities. He's setting up for the last answer. Three. Advice to people at the beginning of their career. Here's the Heart Sutra. Do not imagine that you have to know everything before you can do anything. My own best work was done when I was most ignorant. Grab every opportunity to take responsibility and do things for which you are unqualified. (laughs) Grab every opportunity to take responsibility. Take responsibility. And... Do things for which you are unqualified. B. Advice to people at the middle of their career. That's also lots of you in the room. Middle of your career. Do not be afraid to switch careers and try something new. My friend, the physicist, Leo Szilard said, and then in brackets he says, number nine in his list of the Ten Commandments. And this is a quote. Do your work for six years. But in the seventh year, go into solitude or among strangers so that the memory of your friends does not hinder you from being what you have become. So, triple negative. Do your work for six years. But in the seventh go into solitude, or among strangers. It's like, for some of you, that's like coming to the intensive. I'm going to be a student again. So that the memory of your friends does not hinder you from being what you have become. So the memory of your friends. We, We like to be a certain way for our friends, right? And our friends, as much as they love us, they want us to be a bit predictable. You're a writer. You're a filmmaker. You're a dancer. You're a lawyer. Well, sometimes our friends can hold us back because of that. And because our personality is socially constructed, 
we start identifying with how other people see us. And it's a solace. We, we, want, we want to think of ourselves in a certain way. And so we think of ourselves by internalizing how others see us. We all do that. How can you not do that? We all do that. That's the self is socially constructed. And also, that can hold us back sometimes. We don't take a risk. I remember when I was 20, uh, some of you may know some of my history, which I don't always share. But when I was 20, I had a job working for the actor Paul Newman, who owned a racing car team. And his driver and his racing car team was a man named Mario Andretti, who was retiring. And so I was hired to uh, do the press releases, uh, write press releases for them for a year and a half and travel with them. So I traveled with them. Uh, in the first year I worked for them, I traveled with them for 230 days, 230 hotel rooms in uh, just over a year. And um, I had an apartment in Michigan that I never went to. So at the end of the day, I would come home to my hotel room, and I would just practice, and I would read. And um, slowly, my life started to feel like I was living these two lives. So I'd be like really quiet, introverted. And then uh, the next day, I would be like with racing cars and you know lots of uh, famous people and oil magnets. And then so one day, and, and everyone around me was like, you have the coolest job. You're 20 years old. And they were paying me $45,000. So I was making, like, I was set. And when you move in those circles, your life is kind of taken care of. Because you know enough people that probably you could become wealthy. Uh, you could marry the right person or just be friends with the right family. And it's pretty good. And I liked that. I was 20. I was like, okay, this is like, I can do this. And then one day I decided I can't do this anymore. And I also fell in love. And um, so I, I went to Paul Newman. We were in... Uh, Michigan, I remember it really clearly. And I, I was very pale and I hadn't been shaving. It was the first time I'd never shaved a long time. And he said, you look terrible. And I said, I feel terrible. And I'm coming here to tell you that I'm going to quit. I'm not doing this anymore. And everyone thinks I'm crazy. And I was so scared what all my friends and my parents would think. And his first response is, you know Sandy, who is the um, his assistant? She always wanted to be an anthropologist. And every time I come into work, I think, why didn't Sandy ever become an anthropologist? And I can see in her life that she should have been an anthropologist. And it was like such a relief. And he gave me a really good severance package. And he said, you know, good, go, leave now. I don't want you to stay anymore. Just go. Here's some money. And, and be gone. I hope I don't ever see you again. <laughs> and he was such an elegant man. And um, he really gave me this kind of gift. That, like, it's okay to walk away. To see, like, okay, six years, seven years. It's okay to, to walk away. And to have the support to be able to do that. And then what followed was the scariest time of my life. So I was like, I had no idea what I was going to do. None at all. But I had this confidence from this old man. Because he was like, I don't know how old he was, like 80, I think, at the time. Yeah, Almost 80? Or no, I think he was pretty close to 80. And um, uh, we all need that in our life. Someone to encourage us, who really supports us, to say, set it forth. And sometimes we don't have it, and we need a mantra. Prajnaparamita mantra. That's saying to you every time you're scared, you chant it. And you say, gate, gate, gone, gone, beyond, beyond. 
gone beyond, utterly beyond, yes. No fear. No fear because it's okay to be scared. And then you go forward. So I love this interview with Freeman Dyson. Uh, and he's 88. And when you're 88, you can say things like this because you're not protecting yourself anymore. So go, go, go ahead. Do what you love. Because when you do what you love, the world is a much better place uh, for everybody. The world is such a brighter place when we're around people who are doing what they love. Bodhiswa. Any questions, comments? What do you hear in the Heart Sutra? I think the first time we've ever <laughs> finished a, a text in a few years. Is that true, Mike? Okay. Yeah. Actually, sometimes it's not my fault that we don't finish the text. Sometimes it's because what happens is I'm teaching a text, and then people are like, okay. Well, we, in, the, in the Occupy movement, in the General Assemblies, they had this move, which was this. This just means, okay, wrap it up. You know? And, and it, I get like this. I'm like, okay, we're going to study the third chapter of the Yoga Sutra for three months. And after two months, people will come up to me and be like, okay, it's time to... Wrap it up. <laughs> we finished the Heart Sutra. How does it feel for you, Silva? <laughs> Anybody else? Can you just speak a little loud? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I'm probably only. I must be the minority here that I don't have a job as a yoga teacher or a meditation teacher or anything like that. Yeah. I actually have a full time job. Oh. But it's really that feeling almost like a double life. And uh, even though it's like, like um, being here for two weeks in a completely different environment with different clothing, different way of being myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's exciting and it's sometimes scary how it's going to be accomplished when I have yeah. to go up again and uh, be my role again yeah. and I have to be with all these people again yeah. and be all my life again yeah. with a different perspective yeah. for sure and probably my question but probably it doesn't have an answer or the answer is not up to everyone it's just up to me is how I can link those teachings those and that's going to be your question. Yes. <laughs> how, how are you going to set forth deep, deep wisdom? Your deep wisdom in your life. And that includes your livelihood. It has to include your livelihood. A livelihood that is supporting... The, the spreading of uh, the values of community, uh, non-exploitation, uh, relationship, the fact that we're ecological selves. We have to do this in our livelihood, or we feel it. Um, and also, you have to make money. And you have to make enough money that you have some needs met. And you sometimes also have to look at where um, you don't need to make as much money as you think you need to make. Or, yoga teachers, you have to look at where you have some ideas that you shouldn't make so much money. Because there's a lot of people who are yoga teachers who are working so hard teaching yoga they don't have a good practice because they don't have time. And they say things like, I want to come to the intensive, but I can't afford it. And uh, sometimes I'll say to some people, well, there's no break this time. 
figure out how to make the money. And, and some of that has to do with some real deep self-esteem. So it's both sides. Sometimes we have this idea of, oh, like I deserve to be poor or it's more holy or something like that. And actually that can also be a real disservice to, to our lives. You should be able to afford to get a massage. You should be able to afford. The Buddha said you should invest 25% of your income in re-education and training. So if you know anything about business, that's an extremely high rate of reinvestment. So if you're a teacher, you're a yoga teacher, you should be investing 25% of your income in education, in studying. If you have a business, you should be in reinvesting 25% of your revenue back into your livelihood. So... I think that's a really good model to consider. So if you really look at your wants, if they're quite reasonable, then you have some income that you can reinvest. And if that model seems like so far out, then really check in and see what kind of issues there are around money, where maybe you're stabbing yourself in the foot. A little bit. Now, I'm not saying that model everybody has to adopt. That. There's many circumstances. That would be too simplistic. But check that out. Set forth the Prajnaparamita. It's like, I'm not afraid to look at this. Why? I just can't make ends meet every month. Can't even take a holiday. Or more than that, I can't make ends meet, I can't take a holiday, but I don't deserve a holiday because i got to work. One more comment or question. How about a really good one? <laughs> and then we'll take a break. Um, I was speaking with uh, Emma, maybe, uh, who some of you met, and she showed her videos here. Last night, we were talking about this couple, um, we were like the primal couple of Canadian video arts. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, for so long, they've been both the sponsors, um, both so helpful and gracious and providing the opportunity, so many opportunities for mm-hmm. people. But also, they've been unable to let go finally and just release their positions of responsibility and give that over to other people. Mm-hmm. So she was recounting this moment where. Um, one was saying to, to Emily, oh, we, um, you should really come for dinner you know, when you're in town. It would be so great to see you. Um, and then she's remembering, oh, and there's also this other artist, so-and-so. Yeah, we have to get them out of the way, too. Oh, I mean, we have to, we'd like to have them her over. To, and right there, it was so clear that their relationships have turned because of the positions that they've occupied into this endless series of obligatory relationships. And we were, what we were, what the whole conversation was really about, which I realized only later that Emily and I were having, work, why is their work so empty and terrible? It's because um, everything they, they have endless opportunities. They're showing everywhere the most important, glamorous places in the catalog and books. Their work has no um, guts in it because they never do what they want. Like, they just lost that. You know? All their relations are, if we should do this. It's all strategic. Do your work for six years, but in the seventh, go into solitude or among strangers, so that the memory of your friends does not hinder you from being what you have become. 
Time for chocolate? <laughs> Swaha.